It's often been said that there are times when history and human decisions come together at a single point and cast the die of a nation's fortunes. That's the way it was for Rome when Caesar crossed the Rubicon. That's certainly the way for us in England when Sir Francis Drake sailed out to face the Armada. And of course, that was the way it was for you when the first shots were fired at Lexington and Concord. Others say, though, that it's the gathered consequences of a whole period that really shapes a nation far more profoundly. I'm not sure which side I would choose in today. But there's no question that looking at the United States and the American Republic as a foreign admirer and visitor, that America today is as deeply divided as at any time since just before the Civil War. But the question as I listen to much of the discussion around Washington and wider, what's the nature of that division? Some treat it just as a, another episode in left against right. Many have talked about the coastals in New York and California against the heartlanders in the so-called flyover territory. More recently, people have talked about the nationalists and the populists over against George Soros-style globalists. But my own way of seeing it is actually deeper than that. I would argue that if we look at the trends of movements and ideas throughout America in the last 50 years, what we're seeing is, on the one hand, those whose ideas of the republic and, above all, freedom go back to the American Revolution, which was decisively, through the Reformation, biblical. And those whose ideas of the republic and of freedom go back, often unwittingly, to ideas that come from the French Enlightenment, the French Revolution, and its heirs such as Nietzsche, Gramsci, Marcuse, and more recent thinkers like Michel Foucault. And that, I think, is the deepest source of the divisions today. Now, that's important because those two revolutions are entirely different. We can look at the English Revolution, which in many ways failed, and the American Revolution, which was successful, so different from the French, the Russian, and the Chinese. And as Jennifer said, I was privileged as a boy to be there at the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949. Now, it happens that this year, 2018, is a very significant year in the unfolding of the ideas that came from the French Revolution. Because it was in 68, which was a dramatic year in this country. But it was also in 1968 when Rudi Deutschke, the leader of the Red Brigade, called for a long march through the institutions. In other words, he was picking up on the idea of the Marxists that Karl Marx got it wrong. There wouldn't be a revolution, a proletarian-style revolution, in the streets. And as Gramsci had argued, sitting in jail under Mussolini in his famous prison notebooks, Marx was wrong. To achieve a really successful revolution, one had to achieve cultural hegemony through the so-called gatekeepers. And the long march was that attempt. And you can see 50 years later how in the world of the colleges and universities, the press and media, and the world of entertainment, that actually the dominant ideas owe more to 1789 and its heirs 
than they do to 1776, and it says. Now, the problem is that unlike 1859, 1860, 1861, there has not been to this moment, as I see it, an Abraham Lincoln style of leadership who has addressed the evils in the light of what Lincoln called the better angel of the American nature, and above all, in the light of the Declaration of Independence. I was in Philadelphia a few weeks ago and moved again to read Lincoln's speeches at Independence Hall. How he summarized that all his thinking came from the documents that came out of that hall, and he ends finishing quoting Psalm 137. May my right hand forget its cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I'm unfaithful to the teaching that came from this great building. But more recently, while we've had many people addressing the issue, we haven't had people with the historical perspective of addressing the better angels in the light of today's challenges, but looking to the founding documents as the answer. And I would say, in the years I've been here, I've rarely heard many leaders with a deep sense of history addressing the contemporary issues. I grew up as a boy under Winston Churchill, and there was, I met him too as a teenager, but there was hardly a speech he gave that did not have a sense of perspective seasoned by history. Now, why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because my understanding of nations would follow St. Augustine's simple but profound idea. You don't judge a nation by the size of its population or the strength of its army and things like, as we would say today, the GNP and so on. Rather, you look at what it loves supremely. And is there any question that what America loves supremely is freedom. And yet that's precisely what's fundamentally at stake in what's essentially a clash between 1776 and 1789 over understandings of freedom and the republic. So I'm convinced that America is approaching its Rubicon moment. You remember that it was after Caesar crossed the Rubicon that Cicero pronounced the republic was over. And he was the first one to talk about Rhino, a republic, not a republican, but a republic in name only. And from then onwards, it had gone. And you can see how in many areas today, American freedom, as the framers understood it, in many ways is profoundly under threat, whether it's free speech or religious freedom or whatever. And while people may pay lip service to the Constitution, this is a Rubicon moment when it's becoming less and less decisive in national life. Now, what my book does, or what I've tried to do in the book, is call for a national conversation on freedom. And the book is a checklist of 10 different questions that I challenge as I move around the country, asking Americans to face and decide. How do you see the republic, and how do you understand freedom? Because the two different revolutions come out incredibly differently in terms of their understanding of freedom. The first question I raise is, where did freedom come from? Used to be said that American freedom owed a lot to what Churchill called the ancient liberties of the English that flowed from, say, Magna Carta. But much of the traction of that went out in the 1960s with the reactions against waspishness, 
and of course today with the attacks on white privilege, even more so. Many of the polls show that Americans think freedom came from Athens. But as you know well at Heritage, Athenian democracy lasted essentially only 50 years, and the framers were extremely cherry of Athenian democracy. And historically, it's a simple fact that American freedom owes far more than to Athens, it owes to Sinai. And the book of Exodus, through the Reformation, is in essence the master story of American freedom. And whether it's separation of powers or ordered liberty, or the notion of constitutionalism coming out of the notion of covenantalism. America owes more to Exodus and the story of Exodus than it owes to Athens or any other particular source. And that is rich in implications for all sorts of things. For example, democracy has zero social content. But covenantalism, constitutionalism, is rich with social content, starting with the idea, love your neighbor as yourself, and all sorts of other implications. And that question, where does freedom come from, is something I think Americans need to re-explore. The second question, what do you mean by freedom? A rose is a rose is a rose, as Gertrude Stein said famously. But you can't say freedom is freedom is freedom. Because there are nuances to freedom and complications to freedom that make it much, much more challenging. Just to take one discussion, I had the privilege of being at Oxford with the great Jewish philosopher Isaiah Berlin. And you all know his famous distinction between negative freedom and positive freedom. Negative freedom, freedom from. Anyone under the control or coercion of anyone or anything outside themselves is not free. And freedom has to start with negative freedom. Whether it's a bully or a sexual aggressor or colonial power or something like drugs, alcohol, or pornography. Freedom always begins with negative freedom, freedom from. But as Berlin answers, that's only half of freedom. The other half of freedom is freedom for, positive freedom, freedom to be. And that, of course, requires truth. So that someone knows the truth of who they are and what they're supposed to be. And you can see the fundamental differences that flow out of that. As Lord Acton put it, is, is freedom the permission to do what you like, which is negative freedom run riot, or the power to do what you ought, which is positive freedom on the basis of negative freedom. And yet you can see that many Americans just treat freedom as a cliche, and many of the ideas come down from the French Revolution, ideas such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains, so throw off the repressions, and we'll all be happy, free, and fulfilled. And you can see how much American libertarianism, whether liberal or conservative, is actually closer to that than to the founders' much more nuanced and balanced idea of freedom. A third key question, do Americans face up to the paradox of freedom? Anyone who's visited the Korean War Memorial has probably pondered the words famously, freedom is not free. Brief, poignant, and inspiring. But many Americans have not gone on to look at the 
paradox of freedom, the simple fact that history shows us that the greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. Freedom often undermines itself and becomes permissiveness, license, anarchy, and then rebounds into the opposite, authoritarianism. Often freedom-loving people so love freedom, they'll surround themselves and wanting to be safe, secure, one nation under surveillance, and eventually they're not free. Or freedom-loving people so prize freedom that they'll do anything to fight for it, including things that contradict freedom. And you can go on down the line. In other words, there are all sorts of reasons, political, ethical, spiritual, why freedom becomes its own worst enemy. All freedom requires some restraint, what Edmund Burke calls putting a chain on our appetites. But of course, the only restraint really appropriate to freedom is self-restraint. And yet self-restraint is precisely what's undermined when freedom flourishes and people don't feel like being restrained. And so it goes. And the paradox of freedom works its way out. And that, for me, is the significance of the American experiment, that while freedom in its history is rare and fleeting, here is a country where freedom has been the longest public tutorial in the art of political freedom ever seen. And so for the present generation to treat it so carelessly and in many ways to squander it is of historic importance not only to Americans and their freedom, but to the entire world. Another question I raise often, how do we see freedom in the light of the exploding diversity of our time? Migration, travel, media, scholarship. In the social sciences, it's often said, everyone is now everywhere. And clearly, the deepest differences in this exploding diversity, this pluralization, the deepest differences are religious and ideological. Now, America's always had the understanding that the best way to handle that is through freedom of religion and conscience, once considered the first liberty. And certainly for many of the founders, civil liberty and religious liberty, the twin factors for where people came to this country and why they fought the American Revolution. And yet, sadly, the last 20 years, a bigger change in the understanding of religious freedom than in all America's previous 300 years put together. I call the factors the three dark R's. You have the so-called reducers, who've taken religious freedom, James Madison's free exercise, or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, this comprehensive right to adopt, to practice, to change, to share your faith, they've reduced it to freedom of worship. And even the previous president and the previous Secretary of State under him for a year and a half talked of religious freedom as freedom of worship. Now, of course, we know that every self-respecting dictator in history grants freedom of worship. Because what they mean is anything you believe between your two ears, as so long as your mouth is firmly shut and you stay at home. But that is not free exercise. And you can see that reduction is an appalling caricature of the American understanding. The second R are the removers. 
And you can see those who have turned freedom of religion into freedom from religion, and many of them quite openly because of what they saw on 9-11. And you have new atheists such as Richard Dawkins, the Englishman, or Sam Harris, saying that when they saw the ugly face of religion in public, they wanted to remove it altogether. But the deepest challenge comes from the third R today, which I call the rebranders. So we see in American history, religious freedom, the first liberty. And yet today, it's now described as a code word for bigotry, for discrimination. And you can see it's under serious threat in all sorts of parts of the country because of that. And so in this area, we've seen a greater sea change, as I said, in the last 20 years than in the previous 300 together. And there hasn't been a country in history with an understanding and a practice of religious freedom like this one. So it would be of enormous significance if some of the present ideas inimical to religious freedom prove victorious. Another question, I'll finish with this one. Another question is very simply, where can freedom be grounded? Americans all talk about freedom almost as a cliche, but they don't ask, how do we know? Where do we ground? How do we philosophically justify the belief in human freedom? Now, anyone who knows, say, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Jews stressed freedom as a culture which uniquely held that view over against, say, the Egyptians and the Babylonians and later the Greeks. The Greeks certainly talked of freedom in a certain way, but behind everything was Moira, or fate. And none of the surrounding cultures in biblical times had any high view of freedom. People say, of course, we're different, we're modern. Surely atheists and others believe in it. Actually, if you study the thinking of secularists, Spinoza, Karl Marx, J.B. Watson, B.F. Skinner, Jacques Monod, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, you go on down the line. None of them has a belief in the grounding, or right down to people writing this year, like Yuval Harari, none of them have a grounding in a solid view of human freedom. Sam Harris's book, if you've read it, the front cover is of a puppet dangling on strings. And he argues quite openly that freedom is a fiction. Freedom is an illusion. And it's a simple fact today that anyone could argue that the only solid grounding for human freedom you find in the Bible, in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. And you can see that it's Jews and Christians who today are the guardians and the champions of that high view of human freedom, and they need to be again because there are no other philosophies which give you that solid grounding for why humans can be taken seriously as people have freedom. Yes, we're influenced, but not. You can never close the circuit of influences and say that we are caused and we have no freedom. Now, if this is the Rubicon moment, what's to be done about it? Well, I think the central missing thing at the moment in America is leadership. Now, you hear leaders speaking out on all sorts of topics. 
But I don't hear people speaking out on the nature of the American Republic and the nature of freedom in the light of history, addressing the present challenges in the light of the better angels of the American experiment, which is why voices that have given up on the founders in many areas are much more dominant today. Leadership. As I said, in my 30-odd years in Washington, I've only heard two, I'm sure I've missed others, I've only heard two people on Capitol Hill who've addressed the present situation in the light of history, as say uh, Winston Churchill often did. It's the missing element, leadership. A second obvious thing that needs to be tackled is the restoration of civic education. I take seriously your American earlier motto, a pluribus unum. And as we look back in history, clearly that unum, the uniting first principles of the American experiment, was carried essentially by public schools. They weren't just free education. They were free universal education, which taught the American first principles. And that, of course, lay behind things like the melting pot and so on. But as we all know, with Horace Callan's multiculturalism in 1905, leading right down to many movements in the 1960s, civic education has disappeared from public schools. So say in the discussion of immigration, talk of the wall or the talk of sanctuary cities and things like this, I've hardly anyone heard, heard anyone addressing the challenge of civic education. But obviously, every new child born in this country and every new immigrant who lands on these shores needs to know what it is to be an American, not just to have American citizenship. Without that, as Samuel Huntington often argued, immigration puts more of a stamp on the country than the revolution itself. And there needs to be a powerful new restoration of civic education. I believe if we move out beyond politics, there actually needs to be many other things, including a revival and reformation in many of the houses of faith. As I look at the Western world, this is the one country where, say, Christians are a huge majority and yet have less cultural influence than groups who are a fraction of their size. And followers of Jesus who are called to be salt and light and engaged in the world are today doing anything but. And there clearly needs to be a reformation and an awakening among the people of faith just to play their part with integrity and effectiveness. So put all these things together. I'm an admirer of this country, but sometimes I watch what's happening with sorrow and sometimes with anger at thinking how the greatness of your heritage can be squandered so fast and so carelessly. Because the American experiment in history is extraordinarily different. I'm not a believer in exceptionalism as such, because I think every great power in this, in this time have claimed to be exceptional, and many of them have been in different ways, and the only real exception would be a great power which didn't claim to be exceptional in its time. But there's no question that there are certain things about freedom in this country which are unique. And to see the carelessness with which they're being eroded and with which they're being assaulted in this time, to me, 
is incredibly sad. So I would hope we would have leadership in the next year, two years, five years, ten years, there isn't long, which would address these issues and see a turning around in a solid way. Because I've always been moved, and that was behind the earlier title of an earlier book of mine, by that simple saying, but profound saying, of the 28-year-old Abraham Lincoln. As a nation of free men, either we will be free for all time or die by suicide. Free people who are strong are not brought down by outsiders, but by themselves, which, of course, is so profoundly unnecessary.